From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. Ukrainians saw war just a few years ago and in fact have had this ongoing conflict in the east of the country. But there's just something awful about that dread and that sense of powerlessness and knowing that your, you know, your life is being taken away from you in ways you don't, you can't predict and you won't probably be able to account for for years to come. That's Masha Gessen. Gessen is a staff writer at The New Yorker and author of 11 books, including The Future is History, How Totalitarianism Reclaimed Russia, which won the National Book Award in 2017. Gessen has long paid careful attention to the retreat of democracy and the rise of autocratic leaders around the world, especially Russian President Vladimir Putin. We discuss the escalating conflict between Russia and Ukraine, the similarities and differences between Donald Trump and Putin, and how Gessen felt the calling of journalism from the tender age of four years old. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Support for this podcast comes from Washington Wise, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington affect your portfolio and your money every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise is an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab. The show unpacks the stories making news in Washington and how they may affect your finances and investments. Listen today at schwab.com slash Washington Wise. That's schwab.com slash Washington Wise. Now let's get to your questions. This question comes in an email from Sebastian, who asks, what do you make of the new batch of subpoenas issued by the January 6th committee? Does this mean they're closing in on Trump's inner circle? So I think, Sebastian, you're referring to what happened in the last couple of days when the very aggressive, very hardworking January 6th select committee issued subpoenas to a new batch of four witnesses, Rudy Giuliani, Sidney Powell, Jenna Ellis, and Boris Epstein. What do they have in common? Well, they're all advisors to the former president of the United States. Uh, And what else? They're all lawyers, at least at the moment. Two of those four lawyers have been sanctioned. Rudy Giuliani, you may remember, has had his license suspended in two jurisdictions. And Sidney Powell, of Kraken fame, has been sanctioned by a district court judge in the Eastern District of Michigan and remains to be seen what happens to the other lawyers. What's interesting about this batch of subpoenas is that the committee continues to show that it does not view January 6th, that day, those few hours of the actual violent insurrection, as a standalone event. They think about the lead up to January 6th as being equally important, that the perpetration and perpetuation of the big lie is part of the story and part of what needs to be revealed and exposed to the American people. The committee is also fairly specific in explaining why they want information from these particular lawyers. They have background information on what their participation was, in perpetuating the big lie, and they want to get to the bottom of it even more. For example, in the letter to Jenna Ellis, they're very clear as to what they think her relevance is. For example, the committee writes, between mid-November 2020 and January 6, 2021, you actively promoted claims of election fraud on behalf of former President Trump and sought to convince state legislators to take steps to overturn the election results. That's true of the other folks as well. And in particular, with respect to Ms. Ellis, the committee says, quote, According to public reporting, you prepared and circulated two memos purporting to analyze the constitutional authority for the vice president to reject or delay counting electoral votes from states that had submitted alternate slates of electors, end quote. So she is among the group of people like John Eastman and others who were trying to get Vice President Pence, whom some of the insurrectionists wanted to hang and kill, to get him to do something that the law prohibited, that the Constitution prohibited, and that even former Vice President Dan Quayle said was prohibited. Now, because they're lawyers, will they assert attorney-client privilege and some other claims as to why they can't be questioned? Of course. I don't know that we'll get testimony from any of these people anytime soon. And when I first saw the news in the last couple of days, I thought I would be saying to you all, good luck. You're never going to hear from any of them. Part of that is because the committee, as many of you have frustratingly pointed out, doesn't have a lot of enforcement mechanism. It's one thing to refer Steve Bannon to the Justice Department for Contempt of Congress for defying a subpoena. It's a little bit of a different thing to refer lawyers for the former president to the Justice Department. But as I record this, on Wednesday morning, January 19th, 
there's a little bit of news that has come across the transom, and that is that the Kraken lawyer, Sidney Powell, has apparently said in a statement through her attorney that she will appear before the 1-6 committee and answer questions. Her attorney also says Powell still believes there was election fraud. Well, she was never able to prove any of that in court. So stay tuned. I also got questions about another case in which news was broken in the minutes leading up to midnight this past Tuesday. This is an email from Ava who asks, okay, Preet, how significant is New York AG James's court filing? Does she have the goods on the Trump organization? Of course, that's referring to the ongoing civil, not criminal, but civil investigation being conducted by New York Attorney General Tish James of the Trump organization centering on essentially whether or not the Trump organization distorted the valuation of various assets, particularly real estate assets, and in particular, whether those assets were inflated to benefit the Trump organization, inflated to lenders, inflated to insurers, and on at least two occasions, if not more, as Tish James's court papers point out, inflated to the IRS. The theory being inflation of assets that weren't really worth what was being represented would help Donald Trump uh, with his taxes to get loans and other benefits that he otherwise wasn't entitled to. What's odd about the filing is, first of all, it came minutes before the deadline. Second, it's not part of a substantive actual lawsuit or complaint by Tish James. That hasn't happened yet. Instead, it's part of a procedural fight in which James has issued subpoenas to members of the Trump family who work in the Trump organization, in response to which the Trump organization and family members have filed a lawsuit to block compliance with the subpoenas. And so this is the latest salvo from Attorney General James, who not only argues that there's no basis for defiance of the subpoena, but goes into great, concrete, specific details on what her investigation has apparently uncovered with respect to the inflation of assets. The papers specifically talk about misstated size of mansions, how many buildings could fit on a property, the differential between what some lenders thought a property was worth and what the representations were made with respect to what that property was worth. In one or more instances, the differential being hundreds of millions of dollars. Now, as to your question, does she have the goods on the Trump organization? Well, that's far from known. There's not been a lawsuit filed yet, no complaint filed yet by the attorney general. This is just skirmishing about process and about the subpoenas. And we don't know what the particular defenses will be. Some of these things are not as clear as they might seem. In some cases, the valuations that were represented to banks and lenders and others may have had caveats. In some cases, those are subjective valuations. In other cases, the people who the representations were being made to could be alleged to themselves have been sophisticated valuers of property, incapable of being fooled. Whether that works or not will, will remain to be seen. Another issue will be whether there was reliance on the part of particular individual Trump folks on accountants and other financial experts. What was the extent of their knowledge or their intent in the false valuations, even if they were indeed found to be false? So there's a lot going on here. There's a lot of skirmishing still to happen. I think the bottom line is there's really no basis in connection with an investigation of non-presidential office matters to defy the subpoenas. They'll be ordered to provide documents. They'll be ordered to provide testimony like one of the brothers, Eric Trump, has already done, although he invoked the Fifth Amendment a number of times. Tish James's lawyers will get the documents that they seek, I expect. And then once again, as with a lot of other matters that are pending that you guys keep asking about, will there be a lawsuit? Will there be a verdict? Stay tuned. Stay tuned. There's more coming up after this. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up, and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. 
With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Journalist and author Masha Gessen has become an authoritative voice on post-Soviet Russia, from its promise as an aspiring democracy in the 1990s to its current day as an autocratic nation wrestling to regain influence throughout Eastern Europe. Masha Gessen, thanks for joining the show. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to have you. Long overdue. All of us here are fans of your work. We were talking for a moment before we hit the record button about what work is like. And you said that, I asked you how life was at The New Yorker. And you said, well, it's, you know, it's odd. Because there was a point where you went back to the office for a day and then everyone had to go home again. How, how are you dealing with doing your work without going to the office? You know, it's the strangest thing because I never actually went to the office in the before times. But I realized that I always had a sense of being in communication with a kind of living organism. I had a clear visual image of people running around between offices and and discussing who was on the schedule to do what and and whether one pitch was going to conflict with another pitch. And somehow that was important to me, obviously not just as an image, but um, but I had a sense of being part, like a remote part of a unitary organism. And I think that sort of thing, it's it's much harder to put a finger on than just this many people in a physical space doing very specific things. But it disintegrates over time and you stop having an ongoing living conversation. So that's, that's sad. Do you think it's hardest for younger folks who are just coming into the organization? You know, I can't imagine that it's good. I actually, I had a very, uh, I, I teach at Bard College and I started there, in fact, during the pandemic. And I also taught a course last semester on writing about the pandemic. So we spent a lot of time in, you know, this very intense seminar with a bunch of young people trying to wrap our minds around what what was different, what was particular, what was terrible about the pandemic. And mostly it was what was terrible, right? We um, didn't have a whole lot of wonderful stuff to, to report. But imagine the disorientation of a first-year student who arrives on campus and is, you know, is living in a dorm, is going to some classes in person, but has no topography of the campus, right? Like, isn't allowed to go to other dorms. The library is closed. You're getting mostly carry-out meals. And, and you get kind of a granular picture of how sort of the texture of life breaks down. And... Um, and just the experience of being on campus sort of during that period when everybody was supposed to wear masks at all times and a lot of buildings were closed versus, for example, this past semester when people weren't wearing masks outside and when buildings were open. And I can't say what it was in particular, but it felt different. Like it felt like last fall it was a ghost campus and this past fall it was a regular campus, even though, you know, everybody still went to class in masks. But there's something about the way that people even move through common space when they're estranged from one another that you feel in a visceral level. And it's just, I, it's just awful. It's also maybe a little bit where you think you are in the arc. And I felt that in the fall of 2021, people were making plans. People were you know, setting up dinners. I went to conferences in person for the first time in a very long while. And people thought we had turned a corner. And then when Omicron came and shut everything back down again, you know, even, even though I think smart people think that the end and moving to an endemic situation is not still that far away, it just, it felt a little bit of like defeat. Yeah. And, and a return to something. Like the first time around, everyone was scared and it had a certain feel to it. But this time around, Having gone through it once and having seen sort of the light at the end of the tunnel, it just seemed, you know, disheartening. I think it's that, and I think it's one other thing. So, I mean, th that thing that you're describing, I actually experienced it really strongly when I got a breakthrough infection a month after being vaccinated. So I was on the early side of being vaccinated because I teach in person. 
And then in March 2021, I got a breakthrough infection that was pretty bad. And and it really felt like I was at the end of a horror movie and the monster had grabbed me by the ankle. But I think that um, I've actually, I've traveled a fair amount starting last summer. One of my pandemic resolutions has been, okay, I'm never turning down another offer to travel again. I used to be very spoiled about it. I used to be very picky. Now, whenever I'm invited to be somewhere in person, I don't care how long the flight is. I'm going to <laughs> do it because I may not get another chance. <laughs> you have a new appreciation for going to other places. I have a new appreciation just from moving through space. I didn't realize just how important it was. Even if, you know, I used to think, oh, you know, what's, 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 what's a two-day trip to Paris? I'm only going to be inside my hotel. But no, I'll be on a different sidewalk and it matters. Right. But what I realize is that other countries, with the possible exception of Russia, that I've been to feel very different because there's a kind of anchoring policy. There is an authoritative, a sense of authoritative knowledge about the pandemic. And so even if it seems sometimes a little random, like, you know, the German government saying you can only socialize with two people from different households at a time, except for Christmas when you can have five people over for dinner. Um, I may be making up the, the five number, but there's a special sort of dispensation for Christmas. But everybody's on the same page. You mentioned Russia. Uh, that's a good segue to talk about <laughs> the talk about the place you were born. Somehow it always just comes up in conversation if, if, if you talk to me pre. <laughs> with, with you, yes, of course. You were born in the Soviet Union. You lived there, I believe, till 1981. Your memories of childhood and growing up in the Soviet Union, mostly fond or otherwise? Uh, mostly fond or mostly fog? Yeah, mostly fond or mostly whatever the opposite of fond is. <laughs> <laughs> you know, both. Um, I, and I've been thinking about this a lot lately. Uh, partly the pandemic has really forced me to think about exile and, and home and community in ways that I hadn't thought about this hard, uh, at least since I was a teenager. So my story is a little weird. I, I did live in the Soviet Union until I was 14. And then I came to the United States with my family. And then, so I went to high school in the States. Um, I became a journalist here. And then the Soviet Union started falling apart, and I went back in 1991 and stayed basically for 22 years. So I lived in Russia for most of my life. And I had to leave again in 2013 because of the government's anti-gay campaign and my family specifically being targeted. So I'm like a double exile, once repatriate. Well, the first time... Remind folks who may not be aware, the, the first time your family left the Soviet Union was why? So uh, the first time we left the Soviet Union because of state-enforced anti-Semitic policies, my family's ethnically Jewish, which mattered in the Soviet Union. And among other things, it was very difficult to gain admission to university. And there was a lot of job discrimination. And the flip side of that was that thanks to a huge international campaign, there was a period of, of some years when Jews could leave the Soviet Union. Unlike other ethnic groups that were discriminated against, Jews were not you know, uniquely oppressed in the Soviet Union, uh, certainly not more oppressed than, say, you know, Chechens. But we had this incredible opportunity to, to leave, and my parents really did see it as an opportunity, and as an opportunity for themselves, but more for their kids to get an education and to grow up without that kind of systemic discrimination. So at 14, fairly young teenager, were you excited at the prospect of leaving? No. Were you nervous? Were you deeply unhappy? What, what, what were your thoughts as a teenager? I was deeply unhappy. Well, first of all, it took about three years to get out because it was a fairly involved bureaucratic process. And then there was just a very long waiting period. For some people, it was shorter. For In our case, it was pretty long. So I was in limbo from the time I was 11 until I was 14. So all the sort of things that happen for kids at that age, uh, the kind of identity forming things, for me were provisional. Like I always knew that whoever I was meeting, whoever I was making friends with, whatever I was starting to like, a place or an activity, I might be doing for the first and last time. Right. 
I don't think that this is good for children uh, or teenagers. Or I think I think it's a, it was a pretty traumatic experience. And, uh, well, year, years later, do you do you and looking back, do you still believe that to be so, or do you think it strengthened you in some way? You know, if you survive emigration, uh, <laughs> that's what they say. That's what they say. Yeah, uh, it uh, obviously it made me probably a better writer and a better observer of things. But I think I think it's a terrible thing to do to a kid. And then, of course, I went and did it to my kids. <laughs> right. Did you think about that at the time? Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I still think about it. And um, for, I mean, my daughter just went back to visit for the first time this past summer. She could only go back to visit this past summer because she couldn't go back in until she was... 18 and then COVID started. And so she went, she went back and it's, um, she experienced something very similar to what I experienced when I first went back, which is at once a sense of home and, and just like realizing how much you have been robbed of by, by living in exile, but also a sense that it's, it's, it's not possible to go back really because, because living elsewhere has changed you. I believe you have said that you had a sort of galvanizing moment in terms of seeing activism and journalism as a calling for you at the, at the very old age of four. Can you, can you explain that? You've really done your homework, Preet. Um, I have a great team. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so when I was four, my, uh, the neighbor rang the doorbell and I opened the door and um, she wanted to talk to my parents. And I said, my parents are busy. They're typing Solzhenitsyn. And the, the, the way it worked was that and actually, a friend of mine recently said, you know, the dissidents invented the original social network, the original system of, 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 of sharing and liking. When you got something in the underground distribution system, the Samazdat, you A, passed it on, if it was like a printed book that had been smuggled in from abroad, or if it was a typewritten manuscript, you would retype it. And you would usually retype, uh, you'd usually make four copies because um, a Soviet typewriter, if you were lucky enough to have one, had keys, keystrokes that were strong enough to create four copies of something using carbon paper. So you could make four copies of something and then join the distribution network by passing those copies around. So, and, you know, you got to keep one. And also return the one that you had borrowed and pass three more on to other people. And so that's what my parents were doing. They were typing Solzhenitsyn. And I knew it was very important that they couldn't be interrupted. But then once I said it, there was just this flurry of like, you know, doors shutting and me getting picked up and <laughs> transported to another room. And I don't know what, but I just like knew that I'd said something earth shattering. And, th and that scene stayed with me. And so you became a journalist on the spot. I became a journalist on the spot. I'm not sure, you know, I don't, I don't know. Pre I mean, that might be a little anachronistic. I don't know if I could verbalize it at the time. I like that. It's a good arc. Okay. I think it's a very good arc. Speaking of arcs, you have talked about, obviously, the former Soviet Union, what's been going on in Russia over the last number of years. And one thing you have said about sort of the further descent into autocracy in Russia you said not too long ago, quote, Russia never fully made the choice to break with its past. There was never an investigation and reckoning with state terror. People who were engaged in state terror were never officially disavowed. They were even allowed to continue to serve in high state offices, et cetera, et cetera. And you also say, essentially the same people who are running the Soviet Union are running what we refer to as post-Soviet Russia. Do you mean literally the same people or the same, the people with the same mindset? And if you mean literally the same people, bureaucrats. What if anything happens when they all die out? And what happens when Putin dies? Um, well, that's an easy question to answer. I have no idea. Um, <laughs> but, it's a great, always a great answer. It's my go-to. Right. Um, but it, I mean, it is a good question. Is it literally the same people and what happens when they die out? So, you know, I um, in, my, in my book, The Future is History, I took sort of a deep dive into a fascinating longitudinal study 
carried out by this great sociologist, Yuri Levada, who died a few years back, but um, whose students continue to carry out the study. And it's the study of the, the homo sovieticus, the Soviet person, right? He had a hypothesis back in the 80s that there was a generation of people who had been shaped by living through the Great Terror. And, you know, the Great Terror, depending on how you define it, never goes outside the bounds of 1953, which is when Stalin died and the Soviet Union stopped randomly jailing and killing people. Right? It continued to jail and sometimes kill dissidents, you know, people who explicitly broke with the regime, but it stopped accusing random people of being enemies of the state and putting them in jail or executing them for it. So it stopped engaging in terror, right? Terror is random as opposed to, you know, just political persecution. So Levada has this theory, had this theory that once the generation of people who had been shaped by terror died out, Soviet institutions, which rested on this self-enforced obedience of people who were shaped by terror, Soviet institutions would crumble. And so he did this huge study when he got the money from the Gorbachev government in the late 1980s. He did this huge study, and his hypothesis seemed to be confirmed. Like all the traits that they assigned to this state of um, of having grown, growing up, uh, grown up under terror seemed to be generationally bound. So they made this prediction that, you know, the Soviet Union was on its last legs. And sure enough, two years later, the Soviet Union appears to collapse right on schedule. But then they continued doing the same survey in 1994, 1999, and every five years since. And what they see is a weird kind of reversion to this set of totalitarian adaptations. That it may be generationally bound, but it seems to stick in the slightly older generation. And that every every event, every whether it's a traumatic event or a triumphant event, like uh, the annexation of Crimea, which was for Russia sort of a, a triumph, every event seems to bring back more of those adaptations and and more of those traits in individuals and in society as a whole. And so what we're watching is this perpetuation of the totalitarian experiment that almost looks endless. And, you know, I don't want to say that it's impossible to break with it, but I think that what we would have to see is an actual break, right? An actual reckoning, an actual disavowal. And that's something that didn't happen in the early 90s and seems less and less likely to happen as time goes on. Yeah, I was going to say the prospect for that was not terrific some years ago, but it, would le- it was at least there. And what's the prospect for that now? And as you just said, very little. Very little. And in fact, you know, what we're seeing the Putin government do is the exact opposite. They're right now in the process of shutting down Memorial, which is an organization founded to document and memorialize Stalinist terror with the very explicit goal of sort of carrying out this reckoning so that the country can come to terms with it and put it behind it. And the Putin government has come to the point, has evolved to the point where it sees that as basically seditious activity. Do you think Putin in some ways sees his own mortality and is trying to accelerate his goals, accelerate autocracy, or is he, does he not think that way? You know, that's a great question. I mean, Putin, like Stalin before him, seems to act like a man who believes himself to be immortal, right? There's no succession plan. Right. Sometimes people see, you know, read the tea leaves and say, oh, he seems to be preparing for a transition. I don't actually buy that idea, but also every time something happens in the post-Soviet space, I think Putin sees more and more evidence that he can't possibly loosen his grip on power because bad things will happen. Look at Belarus, look at Ukraine, look at Kazakhstan. So he just continues to grip tighter and tighter and tighter. And that's part of what accounts for the intensifying crackdown. You said something a couple of years ago, which 
I find very interesting. You know, people always want to compare. I've asked this question before of other guests, compare Trump and Putin, talk about their relationship. And somebody asked you, who's worse, Putin or Trump? Which is, I guess, a bit of an unfair question. But, but you answered it by saying, in a way, I think Trump is worse. And you go on to say about Putin, and I was just reminded of it when you were speaking about him a second ago. You say, quote, Putin has an idea. It is self-aggrandizing and absurd on the face of it that if he stepped away, Russia would fall apart. And so he has to carry this burden. And for his labors, he deserves to have the yachts and the palaces and all that. But he is doing it for his country. And then you say, and this is the striking part, Trump doesn't even have that delusion. It's all power and money in their purest form. And you could dig as deep as you want. You would never find a shred of responsibility, end quote. You said that, I think, 18 months ago. Do you still believe that to be true? I do believe that to be true. I think that Putin, you know, as, as, as every mythmaker, and that really includes most of us, comes to believe his own myth. And I think at this point, this myth, having been maintained for 22 years, is, um, is a very heavy one. I think he feels like Russia is his cross to bear. And yes, he deserves a lot of, a lot of wealth and a lot of luxury and a lot of— He's, he's earned his treasure because he's a patriot. Exactly, exactly. And because, he, and because he's worked so hard, right? Whereas I think Trump, and you know, he, he continues to find ways to communicate this to us, even from his current state, um, wherever that is, it, you know, just is pure entitlement without any sense of, 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 of responsibility, burden, history— whatever you might want to look for. Another way of thinking about that is, in your mind, I think you're saying Putin is not quite the narcissist that Trump is, although he's obviously a narcissist. You know, I don't know. I mean, is it, is it less narcissistic to think that, that, you're, that you're an empty bubble deserving of money, or is it more narcissistic to think that you're a great man of history? Maybe we leave that to the, to the experts on psychology. Right. <laughs> we, we, we can talk about a, a very sort of fraught moment instead of taking a step back. Let's take a step to the present. And, you know, we're recording this on Tuesday afternoon, January 18th. And there's a lot of concern about escalating tension between Russia and Ukraine. I don't know how much all the listeners have been following it. How would you describe the gravity of the moment with respect to Russia and Ukraine? What's at stake? Well, what's at stake? You know, the... Uh... Ukraine is a country of about 50 million people, which I think gets kind of lost in the conversation. I mean, not that it would matter, matter any less if it were a country of 3 million people, but this is a large European country that is staring down the barrel of a gun. And the world's biggest players, the United States and Russia or Russia and NATO, are talking about it as though as there were a contest between them and as though this country, these people who have been through actually an ongoing, you know, 31-year struggle to forge a new society in the rubble of the Soviet Union, as though they were just potential collateral damage in the contest of the great powers. And so how should they be talking about it? How should they be talking about it? We should talk talking about Ukraine. You know, we should be talking about the people in Ukraine. I mean, I, I, I have to admit, I've, um, you know, I, as a young journalist, like a lot of uh, uh, people, especially who worked in that part of the world, I sort of, I did a, a number of years as a war correspondent, and I developed this unhealthy obsession with the moment the war starts. Like, how do you know? We, we don't live in a world where one country declares war on another. In fact, we have for many years been living in a world where countries mostly claim not to be at war when they are, in fact, demonstrably at war. So if you're there, if you're inside, how do you know? How do you know that a war is starting? And I mean, in this, like, chasing this, this story that I was determined to write, I remember going to Kosovo in March of 1998, 
And just finding that to be the most awful experience because a whole bunch of us foreign correspondents had descended on Pristina, taken over this hotel in a way that we're all accustomed to doing from years of writing about the Balkans. And we knew what was happening, but the people who lived there had less of a frame of reference. They hadn't seen a war before. We had. I mean, that's not the case for Ukraine. Ukrainians saw a war just a few years ago and, in fact, have had this ongoing conflict in the east of the country. But there's just something awful about that dread and that sense of powerlessness and knowing that your, you know, your life is being taken away from you in ways you don't, you can't predict. And you won't probably be able to account for, for years to come. But you know you're on the verge of catastrophe and there's nothing you can do about it. And that just, you know, it just makes my heart sink. And I wish we were talking about that. No, we should. But, you know, there are people in the U.S. who observe the Biden presidency and and they think that this is also important as a symbol of American power and whether or not NATO is relevant and the power of NATO and the Western democracies who comprise it. Maybe ask ask you this question for a moment. What's Putin's motivation? What What is he after here? I think it's a few things. One, and this is most obvious and almost explicit, he wants to be recognized as an equal player to, to Biden. He wants Russia to always be consulted. And he wants Russia, you know, he wants, he wants a return of the bipolar world. So he's willing to do almost anything to make that happen. I'd say his second level motivation is domestic. He, he is oddly concerned perennially with his popularity and you know he has a vast infrastructure of of measured uh, takers who track his popularity you know which is hard in a non-democracy like how do you know actually what people think because you would think that a guy like putin who does a lot of fake things and he scores you know 93 goals in his exhibition hockey games it's interesting to note that he does care about the truth of his popularity as opposed to a projection of false, you know, a false projection of power and strength and popularity. Is that interesting or not? I think it's fascinating. And it's also fascinating that it's a self-defeating undertaking because a guy who destroys truth on an ongoing basis still wants to know what it is. <laughs> right, right, right. But it's like, you know, he, he makes it he makes it harder and harder to find out what it is, and he still wants to know what it is. So it's a completely doomed quest. And, uh, you know, a a true philosophical conundrum. But for what it's worth, the measures that he's getting are pretty sad. And the last time that he was able to secure a huge boost in popularity that lasted quite a long time was when Russia annexed Crimea. And so there's a very simple way of thinking about it. Like, let's just reprise that. Let's give the people a military triumph that will make them feel like they belong to a great empire. And Ukraine is an obvious target. And I think the third level of motivation is a more and more palpable sense that Russia is a truncated empire that needs to reestablish its old imperial borders. Those are not necessarily the borders of the Soviet Union, right? I mean, Russia was an expanding empire for centuries before the Soviet Union, right? And then it would shrink a little bit and then it would expand again. So, you know, I wouldn't look at the borders of the Soviet Union before 1991 as the exact guide to what Russia is planning to do. But there is a sense, and, you know, we're hearing hearing that fairly explicitly from the foreign ministry, at least in Russian, that all of the former Soviet republics are on notice and that... Moscow does see them, and Putin does see them as his domain. We'll be right back with more of my conversation with Masha Gessen after this. Do you think that the warnings that are being issued by Biden, where he says, we will act decisively, and others in the West are saying it'll be a high price to pay, do you think those warnings are meaningful? Empty or in between? 
I think they're meaningful. I think they they are heard by Moscow. I think there's also a kind of dead-end logic to them. And, you know, we don't tend to think highly of um, individuals who try the same thing over and over, expecting different results. But somehow we allow our governments to do that. The United States has been imposing sanctions on Russia for the better part of Putin's presidency. And it has never had an impact, or at least an impact that we can observe, on the way that Putin has acted. In fact, if anything, it has at times helped him consolidate power. Now, that is not my argument against sanctions. It's my argument against thinking about sanctions as an instrument of influencing Putin, because it is very clear that such an instrument doesn't exist. So if such an instrument doesn't exist, you know, what else can the United States do? If it's going to impose sanctions, then there has to be a different rationale for imposing sanctions. Like, for example, we don't do business with rogue states that uh, that violate international borders and, you know, kill and imprison their own citizens. That's a pretty good reason for, for imposing sanctions. But then you don't measure their success by seeing whether they influence Putin's behavior, because they won't. Right. It's a moral and political stand. Exactly. That doesn't necessarily have a... Con- so if, if they're not impactful, why is Putin listening? Why is Moscow listening? Carefully, as you suggested. Well, they need to prepare for the sanctions, both economically and rhetorically. Right. If I mean they are they're they're doing their math, they do appear to be preparing for war. I mean, you know, at this point, we're recording this on a Tuesday. It's going to uh, be released on Thursday. I'm assuming we're still going to be in a state of anticipating strikes, but I'm not actually sure. Russia has begun pulling its diplomats out of Ukraine. I mean, knowing Putin, there's likely to be a kind of lull for a few weeks so that he still strikes when uh, in an unexpected unexpected manner he likes to do that that's like one of his clear psychological ticks but there's very little indication that this war or this uh, the escalation of this of this war can be averted but you know they're listening to know what they have to do a to you know uh, repair or back up supply chains in, in, in case of sanctions, but also what they have to tell their people to make them feel more sort of mobilized in the face of sanctions. Like, you know, you can't have iPhones anymore because the Americans are so terrible is a better rhetorical move than you can't have iPhones anymore because we went to war on Ukraine. So they have to prepare for that. Right, right. I wanted to talk about the state of democracy in America. And I got a question, you know, one of the things I do in the podcast is I answer listeners' questions. And I got a question that I thought would be perfect to ask you and get me off the hook. (laughs) (laughs) It comes from a Twitter user, which I think is Jackal with Style, who asks a very simple, narrow, concrete question, Masha, and it is this. Is America in a state of decline as a leader in the free world and as an example of democratic values? Oh my God, where do I begin? Be thorough and yet short. (laughs) Um, I, you know, this is, um, people who know me know that I like to take issue with the premise of the question. So there's nothing in that question that I wouldn't take issue with. The idea of of a free world, the idea of a leader of a free world, the idea that the United States is the leader of the free world. Right. uh, And an exemplar, oh my God, of democratic values. Like all of those things are things that I have huge issues with. Right. Well, we we can strip it out and say like whatever you thought, right. America has been, in in whatever state of imperfection, as a leader or a, a, a wannabe leader or anything else, is it in a state of decline from what it was? Yes. Thank you for helping me with that. Yes, I think whatever it is you thought it was, it is in a state of decline, partly as a result of the Trump presidency, where you know, which was just like one ongoing teenage rebellion against every international institution. And I think that we tend to forget just how much of that happened, in part because we weren't paying that much attention, in part because living in a state of instability 
and uh, this autocratic assault that we lived in for four years made us much, even more provincial, us, by now I mean Americans, uh, made us even more provincial than we were to start with, which was pretty provincial, right? So we're looking inward and somehow expecting the world to be paying attention when there was actually an incredible amount that the Trump administration did to cut the United States off from the world. And I'm not sure that the Biden administration stepping back in has been tremendously effective. And um, and certainly the standoff with Russia over Ukraine, and again, you know, registering my objection against thinking of Ukraine in that way as a, as a pawn in the standoff, but um, but in some ways it is. Uh, in some ways, this is this is the biggest test to date of the United States in the world. And and I don't know that there is a a path to leadership. In, in the in this particular tragic situation, so you're pretty you're, you're pretty pessimistic. I am really pessimistic. Again, in some ways, you have said that the United States was not ready for Trump, and I think you also make the point that most people make. I think that Trump is a, is a result of you know what was going on in America. How, how can both of those things be true at the same time? Well, you know, a lot of the time in the world <laughs> and in life. You have to have two thoughts at the same time. And I think that in particular with Trump, the two thoughts that you really have to hold at the same time are two thoughts that are sometimes, I think, unreasonably posed in opposition, which is Trump is an exceptional situation, an anomaly in American politics, and Trump is a continuity of Republican Party politics. And and American politics more broadly of the last 20 years. And I think both of those things are true, right? The United States had never had a president like Trump. If we're lucky, we'll never have a president quite like Trump. We could have, in fact, Trump again. We could have, in fact, Trump again. So, I mean, he is exceptional, right? And um, and even if a Trumpist president follows him, if it's not Trump himself, you know, if it's a Tucker Carlson or a Marjorie Taylor Greene or, you know, pick your, the nightmare scenario of your, of, of your choice, it will be different. And yet I think that the both sort of the national politics of us against the world that followed 9-11 and the anti-democratic minoritarian politics of the Republican Party of the last decade played a huge role in creating Trump, of creating the possibility of Trump. And in that way, he's completely continuity. There's something that I have a hard time figuring out how to think about in America. You know, you have said from time to time, uh, you know, commented on uh, what you refer to as the rush to relegate to memory something that is still happening. And, and I find that to be true, that we have a, a let's move on culture. You see it with respect to January 6th. There are many, many people, including, by the way, some people who don't like what happened on January 6th, who might say... It's being divisive to dwell on it, not sure that some people should be charged with crimes in connection with it. There, there is, I don't know if this is unique to the United States or not, a rush to move on, go to the next thing. And I understand the downside of that. It can cause you to regress and go back to the bad thing that you're trying to get behind without having reconciliation and confrontation. Is there anything good about the American sort of proclivity to want to move on quickly? Of course. I mean, I think I think that there's something beautiful about the, you know, the sort of future-oriented ethos that's that's so fundamental to American political culture. I mean, I, I really, really don't believe in universal recipes for anything. Yeah. And I think that when when I've talked about this tendency to move on and, and to sweep things under the rug, it's like, I don't think that the universal recipe for political success is pausing and processing everything that happens in a country until it is done with and, and consensus has been reached. Like that is no more a universal recipe than the recipe of, of just putting things behind us and, and moving on. What I think we have to do, and again, you know, you would expect that of an individual to be cognizant of the pitfalls inherent 
in whatever your dominant strategy is. Right? And if our dominant strategy is to put things behind us and move on toward an ever brighter future, the obvious pitfalls of that is that we may not notice that it's still happening. We may not deal with the underlying things that brought it about. And it may happen again and be worse. Right. I mean, it's like getting a diagnosis from a doctor. You get past the initial bout of disease, whether it's cancer or something else, and then say, I'm never going to the doctor again. I'm going to forget about it and move on. Exactly. When these things can reemerge, and they do in, in people and, and in bodies politic as well. But it's, it's, not, it's not even, I think it's like it's getting a diagnosis from a doctor, going through your chemo, being declared cancer-free, and taking up smoking again. Right, 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 right. Well, that seems more obvious. That seems less of a conundrum. <laughs> okay, good point. Yeah, <laughs> right. let's stick with yours. Yeah. <laughs> there's this other thing that, that bothers me. There, you may have seen there's a, and I haven't looked into it very closely. I keep meaning to. I think it was a study out of Princeton. And maybe people have already perceived this to be true, but their conclusions are very stark. And it's the conclusion that the popularity of a particular policy or proposal in America has virtually zero effect and impact on that policy being implemented, adopted, or enacted. Is that the very definition of broken democracy or not? I think that is the very definition of broken democracy. Um, you know, and it's not just, uh, I mean, one symptom of this broken democracy or a component of broken democracy is the way we cover it in the media, right? We have this, this alienated way of covering policy that, that focuses on either the legislative mechanics or the arcane points of actual policy and almost never focuses on the actual impact of actual policies on people's lives, which is what accounts for their being popular or not popular, right? So I think well, that the I, I would actually, I would dispute, I think it's even worse than that. I, I think you're lucky if you get them to even concentrate on the policy. I think most of the time they're concentrating on who's winning or losing with respect to getting the policy passed or defeated. It's, it's more the sport. Right, absolutely. I mean, the, the sort of the top level of coverage is always the, 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 the horse race coverage. And then the, wonk, the wonky level of coverage is the, the arcane details of the policy, um, which I would argue is not much more useful, possibly less useful because it makes it seem like an abstraction rather than, you know, something that actually has a direct, a direct impact on people's lives. And, you know, I actually often think back to this incredible sense during perestroika uh, and glasnost in, in, in the Soviet Union when suddenly, for a short period of time, the papers were writing about things that were happening in the Kremlin in ways that made it clear that they had an impact on, on people's lives. And it was, like, it was like watching a miracle, right? The media actually doing what we're supposed to do, what we're meant to do, and people consuming it and, and being informed. And I, you know, I haven't seen anything like it in, in many, many years. But certainly, I think in, in the U.S. media, we just keep getting farther and farther away from it. You know, you've made this other criticism of journalism as well. You said once, quote, I have very little patience for the idea of objectivity. I have more patience for the idea that there's an objective style to serve the original concept of objectivity in journalism, end quote. What do you mean by that? So the concept of objectivity in journalism goes back to the 1930s when a group of wonderful thinkers and writers in the United States decided to address themselves to what they perceived as a crisis in the media of too much opinion and not enough tangible fact. And they thought that journalism should be more like science, where every story is like an experiment. And the criterion you apply to it is whether it's transparent and replicable. So that's where we get the objective style. That's where we get the journalists saying, this is everyone I talked to. These are the questions I asked. And the conceit is if you went to these same people under the same circumstances and asked them the same questions, you'd get the same result. That is not actually true, but, but I think that's kind of a beautiful idea, right? A beautiful abstraction to, to aspire to. Somehow over nearly 100 years, 
this has devolved into this both sideism, which posits the entirely fake premise that there are two sides to every story, only two sides, and that they're equally distant from the objective facts. And all you have to do is get an equal number of, of, of opinions or views from one side and the other side, and then you're done with your story. And that's sort of the devolution of the idea of objectivity. And what I mean by the objective style is that the style of transparency, the style that aims for replicability, the style that tells you exactly how the journalist got the information and who they got it from, that's something that's actually very, very useful. But objectivity is the idea that, you know, we don't know the truth, but we have to represent two different views of it. I have no use for Going back to one of the reasons you left, or maybe the principal reason your family left the Soviet Union, were systems of anti-Semitism set up. Do you think that in the United States, we address and call out anti-Semitism sufficiently? Uh, um, <laughs> Let the record reflect that there was a heavy sigh. There was a heavy sigh because... Um, <laughs> I have a real problem with that question. Let me try to parse it out. I mean, yeah. maybe I just have a problem with it because I live in New York City. And, um, you know, it's on the one hand, of course, anti-Semitism is real. And even living in New York City, I occasionally see evidence that it is real. I see anti-Semitic rhetoric taking a greater and greater hold on the Trumpist right. Certainly the acts of terror we have seen at Jewish places of worship have appeared to have increased in the last few years and are absolutely terrifying and, you know, terrify me in a visceral way like other things don't. I also have a very difficult time in this country calling out instances of anti-Semitism without putting them in the larger context of white supremacy. I think that to the extent that anti-Semitism plays and works to a particular audience in this country, it is part and parcel of, of a culture and politics of white supremacy, and it has to be seen in that context. Otherwise, singling it out and calling it out may actually serve to obscure our view of you know, the much larger structural forces of, of racism and white supremacy right. that are operating in politics. So let me change the question. Then the, the, the better question for these purposes is, you know, do, do we in this, and I think I know the answer that you're going to give, do we in this country sufficiently identify, call out, and condemn white supremacy? This is great. I get to revise my questions with you on a real-time basis. And elicit bigger and better size. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, I think it's, it's an ongoing and fraught process. And I, I think that some of the ways in which it's proceeding is, is, is a really tragic, right? I mean, in some ways, we've had these extraordinary cultural breakthroughs, like the 1619 Project. Right, which even for the amount of, of um, vitriol it has aroused on the Trumpian right, uh, you know it, 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 that has served to make it more part of the vernacular and an unforgettable, unignorable part of American culture. It also backfires, obviously, because so many people who talk about it uh, never read it and don't understand what it says, which is which is an obvious problem with the whole fake debate about critical race theory. Yes. So, um, so the, the answer is yes and no, and, and it's complicated and bad. How's that? <laughs> I'll take it. It's a long-form podcast, but it's, it's, not, it's not forever. <laughs> about a year and a half ago, you talked about the matter of your own self-presentation, and you posted a tweet that said, quote, I avoided the topic of pronouns for a while, but when my new book was coming out, it seemed I had to make a decision about self-presentation. I am trans non-binary, so I asked to be referred to as they. It's been an instructive few weeks. How instructive were those weeks? What happened? It was, it was kind of a funny experiment because I 
I'm actually fairly agnostic on the subject of pronouns. And for a while, my my signature on my college email was they, he, she. So, you know, use what you what you want. But when I was when I was doing publicity for my most recent book, Surviving Autocracy, I would ask journalists to use they them as 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 my preferred pronoun, sort of saying, you know, I'm not like precious about it, but use they them. And and I should also say that the reason that I'm I'm so sort of relaxed about it is because I think partly because of being bilingual, I sort of very clearly perceive the artificiality of of language. For example, there's no they them pronoun in Russian, and I have to gender myself in Russian all the time, and I mostly just go with the lifelong habit of of gendering myself as female, because why not? But then I realized that when I wasn't so strong about expressing a preference, journalists would just decide to gender me as female, and that I realized made me uncomfortable, because. Because I was farming out this decision, then you know, then I was unreasonably upset that they made their own decision. So I decided to um, <laughs> uh, to use they them, and and the reason that you know that it made me uncomfortable in the end was because I thought, okay, look, I have I have the power to to use my visibility and 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 to use my opportunity to to tell a journalist how to refer to me on behalf of a lot of people who can't and so I should just use it like that's that's not a place to to short responsibility and it actually feels better when people refer to me in a more precise way it does make me feel more seen as hokey as that sounds and have you found some people just refusing to do that no but I think I live in a charmed world of uh, you know New York City media and uh, liberal arts college Masha Gessen, thanks so much for being on the show. It was a real treat. Thank you so much for having me. It was wonderful. My conversation with Masha Gessen continues for members of the Cafe Insider community. To try out the membership free for two weeks, head to cafe.com slash insider. Again, that's cafe.com slash insider. I want to end the show this week with a little bit of personal news. You've heard me over the years talk about how inspired I am by the young people in this country and around the world, even very young people. I think it's the case that we often underestimate young people, even children, who have an innate sense of fairness, ever watch children play a game, they know who's cheating and who's not. And I think at a fairly young age, children can start to learn about justice and fairness in a way that we don't often think about. And so the news is, In response to prompting from my publisher, I've authored a picture book for children. It's called Justice Is, and it addresses basic themes of justice that children can understand. It talks about how justice is important, how standing up for justice is difficult. It takes curiosity and questioning. To be clear, I did not draw the pictures. They are beautifully rendered by a master illustrator named Sue Cornelison, who has won awards for her illustrations and has done a number of books, including one called My Little Golden Book about Martin Luther King Jr. One of the purposes of the book is to provide parents with the ability to begin to teach their kids about some of the more heroic figures from history who fought for justice and fought for fairness, from Lincoln to Gandhi to Malala to John Lewis. I'm donating all my income from the picture book to a great cause. It's called the New York Legal Assistance Group, or NILAG. What do they do? Every day they fight for justice for adults and children in crisis. They impact the lives of 90,000 people each year, including tens of thousands of children, by providing free legal services to those who can't afford an attorney. Because of the work that NILAG does, among other things, families facing eviction can stay in their homes, survivors struggling with intimate partner violence can leave their abusers and build a safe life for their children, children with disabilities can access the education to which they're entitled, and they do a whole lot of other stuff too. If you're interested in learning more about NILAG or making your own contribution, go to NILAG.org. That's N-Y-L-A-G dot O-R-G. If you otherwise have young people in your life and you're interested in taking a look at the book, go to justiceisbook.com. Again, that's justiceisbook.com.
Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Masha Gessen. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to letters at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The technical director is David Tatashore. The senior producers are Adam Waller and Matthew Billy. And the CAFE team is David Kurlander, Sam Ozer-Staten, Noah Azulai, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, Chris Boylan, Sean Walsh, and Namita Shah. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm your host, Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.